1: For Inside Carolina, I'm Taylor Vipulis, and you're listening to this podcast, which is a part of the Inside Carolina Podcast Network. On today's episode, I'm joined by my fellow Carolina football letterman, Mike Ingersoll and E.J. Wilson, to talk about Carolina's loss in the Dukes-Mayo Bowl against South Carolina. Before we get started, though, I just wanted to say thank you for being here. Be sure you subscribe to Inside Carolina wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube so you never miss out. On any of the content the team at IC puts out, the support doesn't go unnoticed on this end. Speaking of support, we want to support the people that support us. So that's why I've got to mention our friends over at Johnny T-Shirt. When it comes to Carolina Apparel, they have everything you could want. The T-shirts, the jerseys, the hats, you name it, they probably will have it. It's great people and great customer service since it's locally owned and operated by alumni. And don't forget, Inside Carolina, premium subscribers Save 10% off their orders. All right. For the final time this season, it's Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson. Guys, Carolina, they. They just get humiliated in the, in the bowl game against South Carolina. They lose 38-21 to 21 to the Gamecocks in a game that really never felt too
2: close. Mike, what were your biggest takeaways starting with you? I mean, we had a month of bowl prep, uh, you know, available to us. I don't know what we did during bowl prep along the offensive line, but it wasn't pickup twists. Uh, we haven't done that. I've been, i been, i been screaming about that since Virginia Tech. I mean, we haven't picked up a twist on the O line since last season. So, I mean, it was just more of the same. Um, and that's, and and I'm, and I'm, I'm past putting that on the players. I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm saying it now. I, I'm, I there comes a point where it's not on the players anymore. Um, so big, big issues on the offensive line. Couldn't pick up twist. I'll tell you what, we picked up a twist in the run game, and British Brooks snapped off a touchdown. We picked up a twist in the run game, and lo and behold, we scored seven points on a massively long run from who I think is a very good running back. Um, And we made that kid look really good. So the ability to do it is there. I don't know what the disconnect was, but we we struggled. Uh, I didn't expect to be as utterly dominated on both sides of the ball in what amounts to a rivalry game against one of the worst teams in the SEC in a bowl game, like a game that mattered, because if you lose the game, you got a losing record for both teams. Like it mattered. And we came out like it didn't matter. Um, My takeaway, I was at the game and my takeaway when I was walking out of there was that we played better against Texas A&M in the orange bowl with essentially a backup backup skill players for the most part, with the exception of the quarterback than we did against South Carolina in the mayonnaise bowl with all of those backups now being full-time starters and having an entire season of production on their belt, some of them being very productive. Um, so it was overall it was disappointing. I mean, I don't know how else to I'm sure it's evident in my voice. I mean, it's just it's disappointing, but also it's like, well, it's just kind of more of the same. It's been a, you know, we we've been like aiming for the middle all season long. And that's sort of where we ended up. I mean, at six and seven, we're slightly below the middle. Um, average would be a 500 record. We are slightly below average, which is shocking given the, the talent we had at particularly the quarterback position. It seems like a real waste of, um, a Heisman caliber quarterback going into the season. Seems like a waste of an offensive line with a ton of starting experience and a ton of game experience under the belts across the board in the two deep, not just the starters, but the two deep with a ton of, a ton of game experience. Seems like a waste of a guy like Josh Downs, who put up an incredible year early on, and then, uh, you know, this game was, yeah, had some production, but for whatever reason, was a non-factor. I don't put that on him at all. I don't put it on Sam. Uh, He just, you know, whatever for whatever reason was either phased out of the game plan or South Carolina took him away, which we should have never let happen. Um, you know, there there are some positives. We'll get into it, but you know, for the most part, this was. This is not the direction that the Mac Brown program was supposed to be going. It, it seems like, to draw an analogy to Texas, Sam Ellinger after the Sugar Bowl saying we're back, did they beat Alabama in the Sugar Bowl several uh, years ago?
1: Might have been Georgia.
2: It was Georgia. I think it was Georgia. Beat Georgia in the Sugar Bowl several years ago. Sam Ellinger you know, wins the MVP of that game, announces, you know, you know, hey, Texas is back, and they're clearly not. It was a flash-in-the-pan season during that during that period i'm hoping this orange bowl wasn't a flash in the pan season and that this was just sort of a this season was an anomaly and last season wasn't the anomaly but the reality is Max has been here it's three years now we've gone seven and six after a six and six regular season which was defying expectations in the first year by a ton second year covid year got as high as number five i put that in air quotes Um, But, you know, we finished eight and three and then gave Texas A&M a pretty good run for their money in the bowl game, finished eight and four. I mean, okay, good year. You'd think we'd build on that now, given all the pieces we had coming back. And we regressed to not just first year, but worse than the first year to six and seven, not seven and six after a bowl loss. Um, That isn't the trajectory you want to be on. Mac knows that the staff knows that and they'll do what they need to do to correct it in the offseason. I want to make that very clear. This staff is very capable of correcting those issues and making the improvements necessary to be good. I'm just waiting to see, you know, if and when that happens going into next year. But again, there's silver linings to this. We'll talk about that. But overall, I mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm I'm as disappointed as everybody else, particularly since I was there and it was a great environment. I mean, the, the, the Duke bowl, Duke's mayonnaise bowl did a great job. I'll put on a bowl game. I will say, I mean, having played in that bowl game and EJ can talk about this, having played in that bowl game twice, um, back when it was the Meineke bowl, I thought the, you know, I thought the bowl, the bowl committee did a good job back then, but really this mayonnaise bowl, like was a, it was a, it was a top notch production. I mean, they put on a really good show for the fans. It was fun. It didn't take itself too seriously. Um, I thought it was a great, a great atmosphere. It was a great matchup. Um, and we just came out flat and I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe how flat we came out given the fact that this game really, even though we were six and six, this game mattered for the season. Um, and it was against an opponent that you're familiar with, number one, that you beat last year, and that's sort of a rivalry game on a neutral field where your fans are going to be engaged because it's a direct midway point between both schools. I was just very surprised at and how we came out in that game, and, and I hope it's not indicative of things to come.
1: Yeah, I think everybody kind of has that same level of frustration um, that you just mentioned. If you care, If you care about this team and if you care about this program, I don't understand how – you, you can't be frustrated after what you've seen this year. But, EJ, what were your biggest takeaways from this game?
0: I think Mike kind of really summed everything up. I mean, he really summed up the the feelings of myself and the feelings, I think, of the Carolina faithful. Um, it's really kind of disappointing to go out there and see that. And I'll even go a step further. And I think this season what we saw was our um, program going back in time. And I think us, uh, the game uh, – the bowl game was really a culmination of, of what this season was. And I think everything went wrong. I mean, and this is just another game where we put on displays the, 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 the weaknesses and the discrepancies that we have on both sides of the ball. I mean, we came out and we started out slow. Um, they figured out that we couldn't uh, defend a running quarterback. So they take a guy who hadn't thrown a pass in years and put him back there and we make him look again, once again, make him look like he's.
2: EJ, EJ, he, EJ, he went nine for nine. He was a wide receiver and went nine for nine for 160 and a touchdown. And then he's the back, and then the backup, mm-hmm. the backup who, I mean, who looked like, I mean, the white kid. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know who that kid was. Um, he, he was a grad assistant coach to start the season. That's who that kid was. Okay. He's that, he's that good story kid. I mean, he didn't look like he didn't look like he's been in a college weight training. I mean, no offense to him. He played a great game. But, I mean, he's he's like the, the dad bod quarterback that came in after that kid, after the wide receiver. I mean, dude, what do you, what do you make of that? Like, I mean, they, they just they – two two players that barely played tore us up.
0: And, and that's a bad and, – and that can always be the excuse of, well, we didn't have any film on these guys or couldn't prepare you have a guy that hasn't thrown a pass. He's basically flawless the whole game. There's a little bit something deeper going on. I mean, we saw the bad angles on full display. We saw the bad tackling on full display. I mean, we, we gave up big plays. I mean, it, it's like every every time that they, they were running or passing the ball, they were knocking off 10 to 15 yards. And, I mean, it's it's like you get to a point like where's the heart? Where, where's the where's the goal? Where's the kahunas of these guys? Are they going to come out? Like, you have a whole month to prepare for a team, a team that you – but, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit different coaching staff, a little bit different look, but we just saw these guys. And um, it's, it, it, I, I just really don't understand it. I mean, and I thought with this coaching staff that, that that we wouldn't have to run into these issues, that they would keep the guys motivated and keep the guys from regressing. But I'm not really saying this. And, and like I said, I'm with Mike. I mean, at, at some point, we got to stop blaming this on the players and um, and kind of hold the people that are whose job it is to get them ready to play and get them prepared. We got to start looking at these guys. And like we always say, we're not the people that are going to sit up here and, on this podcast and call for coaches' jobs because we've we had that happen to our own coaches, and we know how dejected it made us feel as players. And then at the end of the day, these are men with families and jobs who's livelihood is dependent on this. So I'm not going to sit here and say a coach needs to be gone, but what I what we do need to do is have a reevaluation on how we're developing our players, how we're approaching our game plan and how we're approaching being successful in the season overall because – Honestly, I mean, I, I don't think that the Carolina faithful wants to sit through another season like this year. Not only did we not play well, but the way we lost was very heartbreaking in most games. And, and like I tell people, the game against NC State, I mean, yeah, it, it's, I'm not so much upset that we lost. It's the passion that we lost. I mean, the NC State fans are going to be talking about the epic collapse for years. And I feel like this is just another thing that had, that people, some South Carolina fans are going to be able, able to hold over our heads so it, it it's really leaves a bad taste in your mouth uh, going into the off season. I mean, just this time last year, we were talking about how well we played against Texas A&M and the good feeling we were going to have going into the off season. Well, maybe this is going to be the exact opposite, and it's going to light of fire on some guys and it really motivate not only our players, but our coaches to really evaluate themselves and, and see how we can come out and be better next year. But um, like you said, Mike, I really hope that, that, that uh, this season was be enough.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, EJ. And, and I, you know, Everyone needs to be clear on this. Everyone is listening to this. You know, we EJ and Taylor and I, I mean, we, we don't call for coaches jobs. I'm with EJ 10,000% on this. Like it affects the players. Um, it absolutely affects the players. Um, it does leave you with a dejected feeling when you hear it, particularly if it's your coach, if it's your position coach, you know, it makes you think that you aren't prepared and you don't know what to do. And that falls on the player. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ownership and accountability from the player's standpoint that comes with that. You know, when you hear that your coach is on the hot seat or, your, you know, your position coach needs to get fired from the fan base, you know, that makes you question a lot of things that you did um, and the validity of some of the stuff that you did. The good, you know, the good stuff. And then, you know, is the bad stuff even worse than, it real, than you thought it was at the time when you watch it on film review that season? So, you know, we, we are not doing that. and I will never do that. I will never. But, but I think EJ is absolutely right. You know, there, there needs to be a reevaluation period that goes on here in terms of how you develop players. Um, and I think this staff is very well positioned to do that. There's a ton of experience on this staff. They've all had they've every one of these coaches has coached great players and has developed good players into great players throughout their careers individually. It is possible for the staff to do it. Um, I don't I don't think there needs to be, you know, massive overhauls or changes in that regard. I think it's just a, you know, the, the reset button needs to be hit. Um you know, and they need to they need to come into this offseason with fresh eyes, which they will. And Mac will get them right. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm hoping that we see the the benefits of that. I think the silver lining, the biggest silver lining, you know, and I mentioned we'd get to it. EJ just touched on it is you hope that this will light a fire under their butts. This is the inverse of what the Orange Bowl was last year. Um, you know, Orange Bowl being a loss, but it was, you know, it was a, you know, again, I hate this term, but moral victory. Um, There was a lot of stuff to talk about after that loss. There's a lot of good things to look at primarily because it was an offense full of backups at the skill position. And we showed a lot of promise and we showed a lot of ability and gave us a lot of hope for the future. This does not give you that feeling. Um, So, you know, there's, there is the hope now that this will, you know, instead of giving you the jolly feel goods in the off season and lead into you know, on a road loss at Virginia tech to start the season the following year, that this will light a fire under the, under this team's butt. And going into next season, it'll be gangbusters. You know, they'll come out ready to roll and we'll, and we'll start running through some people. Um, And if they don't, you know, we'll know by, and I'm not kidding about this. We will know week one, what we're looking at next season. I usually say it's about week three, week four, that you really know what a team is. And that's still true from a production standpoint. You're going to know what that team is, but you're going to know what the mentality of this team is starting week one. You're going to, that's going to be evident. So pay attention to that, everybody, going into the next season. You know, the, the attitude you see on the field, the body language, and the way that the, the team in the locker room is carrying itself is going to be a reflection of the coaching staff and the ability to get them prepared and to get them improved this offseason. And you're going to see that week one. So pay very close attention.
1: Yeah, going to my biggest takeaways. Well, first I I saw a stat that I'm pretty sure said that Carolina is the first team, uh, only the second team in college football history since they've been tracking like spreads and everything to lose three games in the same season um, as a double digit outright favorite. And You saw that three times this year against Georgia Tech, against Florida State, and then against South Carolina in the bowl game, to where I think a lot of people are surprised what happened in the bowl game against South Carolina, but really, in hindsight, it shouldn't have been that surprising, because this is who this team has kind of shown they are all year, where I think a lot of people still have this idea of this team as being a team that could be a top 25 team when this team has tried to show everybody all year that they're not that good of a football team. And I think that was again, exposed on, on Thursday for the bowl game. And when you're, when you're looking at these two teams coming in, a lot of times you guys know from bowl games, it's which team wants to be there more. Yeah. And South Carolina, they were the team that was, they had uh, COVID going through their program. They had, um, players opting out. They didn't have their starting quarterback. They didn't have their starting running back. They were missing key guys on the def- the defensive side of the ball. Whereas Carolina, you have players who opted out like guys who were getting transfer, like Bo Corrales and Eugene Asante and Kyler McMichael. But really those guys aren't, weren't impact players for this Carolina team this year, outside of somebody like Kyler McMichael at the second or third corner spot. But you, you couldn't tell which team was which from the start of this game where Carolina gets punched in the mouth against South Carolina, where now the past three games against FBS opponents, Carolina has lost the first quarter 49 to nothing. And it's like something, something is wrong with this team where they, when I was talking with, um, I did a video with Trey Boston before, before the bowl game. And I was kind of getting his take on this team. And I think one of the biggest points that he hit on, and it kind of goes into that 49 nothing point um, in the first quarter is that this North Carolina team, when you watch them play, it's almost like they expect respect to be handed to them because they are North Carolina. They were a team that went to the Orange Bowl last year. They they have a quarterback as good as Sam Howell. And it's it's actually the complete opposite where it's almost like there's a target on this team's back. And, and for whatever reason,
2: they, they don't they, know it. They don't
1: know it. They, everybody in the building knows that they have a target on their back, except for this North Carolina team, and that's that's the problem where this team gets punched in the mouth and they're left scrambling in the second and the se- the second quarter and then the second half trying to figure out you know what went wrong. But when you set yourself as far back as this Carolina team did, uh, you're you're just digging a hole that you really can't get out of, and we saw that in the South Carolina
2: game. Um, so Taylor, I mean, you made, and, and you made a great point. Bowl games are a weird animal. I mean, it really is about who wants to be there, particularly when it's not, you know, a, a major bowl game, like a New Year's Six, like the Orange Bowl last year, um, or or now the college football playoff, what used to be the BCS. You know, if it's not a, you know, I think in BCS terms, if it's not a BCS bowl game, you know, those other games feel like they don't necessarily matter. Um, but there's always one team. One of the teams in these lower, you know, these lower mid-tier bowl games typically look like they really want to be there. It matters to them. And the other team comes out flat. And it's always – It's strange to me how that always looks. It's rare that you get, you know, a ton of these, you know, great matchups where we had, you know, think back to the 2008, the West Virginia, you know, the Meineke Bowl down there in Charlotte, West Virginia, North Carolina, you know, Hakeem Nix behind the back, uh, Pat White, Steve Slayton, you know, that game, those were two very evenly matched teams. They both wanted to be there and play. It was a high-scoring game, and they played really hard, and it came right down to the wire. There are a few of those types of bowl games that are trickled around bowl season every single year but there are way more bowl games where it's like this it's just lopsided where one team definitely wants to be there one team doesn't and you really see how bowl preparation stuck with some players with some teams and how it just you know it was the other team looks like they must have just been going through the motions during bowl prep I'm not accusing us of that I'm not accusing us of going through the motions in bowl prep I wasn't out at practice I wasn't in the meeting rooms I don't know what the mentality was I just know what the end result looked like and that's all, I'm, you know, all I can comment on is what I see. That's the product on the field. I can't comment on the process. And I want to be careful about commenting on the process because I don't know what the process looked like. But what I can tell you is I agree with you 100%, and I think EJ will too, that bowl games are just, it is. there's a weird feeling around them. There's such a long, you know, there's, there's every week, you know, you get into a rhythm in the season. It's every week I'm playing a game. And then you got a bye week. You come out of the bye, then you got more games. You know, it's, it's very regimented, it's very, obviously very scheduled. Um, and very structured. And then you get bowl, bowl prep. And it's like, if you play a game on December 30th, I mean, you're off for a month. I mean, it's a whole month you're off and you've got, you know, a week, you know, you got a couple, you got workouts in there, but you're not practicing. So it sort of feels like the off season. Then all of a sudden you got to strap your pads back on. You got to go out and you got to practice. That's to be honest with everybody. It's kind of annoying. Like, Cause your body got into the, to the rest period, you got into that rest rhythm and then you had to throw pads on, go back out and practice, get back into it mentally. It's hard to flip that switch back on during bowl practice and during bowl prep, but eventually the good teams, you know, and the teams that win their bowl games, that switch does flip back on during that prep period, during that practice period. And then that will always, you know, if as long as you flip that switch early and you keep it on, that will typically translate into success in the bowl game. I don't know if that's what happened here. And again, I can't comment on the process with Carolina because I don't know what that process looked like. I wasn't there for it. But I, again, I know the end result. And it looks like that that switch either didn't flip early enough. It didn't, it didn't stay on long enough. But something I do know that something didn't translate from the prep period into the game. And you always see that in bowl games. And I don't, you know, it's it, but it is shocking going back to the point I made earlier about how this one mattered. It's shocking to me not that we lost it. There's always I, bowl games. Again, I always, it's a flip of the coin as far as I'm concerned for most of these matchups, but it's not that we lost it's how we lost and how flat we looked when we came out. We should have never looked that flat um, in a game that mattered in a, in a game that had, you know, significance for this team and for this program moving forward and to validate a season that was pretty up and down, but, you know, and on a high note, like, look, yeah, okay, listen, we're, we had a rough year, but we ended on a, you know, it's a winning season. We're still a winning football team. Like that's sh- like, duh, that should have been like a no brainer for this program. Okay. Finish the season with seven wins above 500. All right. It is of significance going to the off season with some momentum, you know, hit the reset button on development in the off season and then roll in the next season and hopefully, you know, start running through people. That obviously didn't happen here. Um, so it is surprising to me how flat we came out under these particular circumstances. But as a broader, you know, and as, as a broader, more general view of bowl games, this is not uncommon to have such a lopsided matchup, even when you think the teams are pretty evenly matched or, you know, or should be at least um, for whatever reason, particularly in these, you know, lower and middle tier bowl games.
1: Yeah. I also found the stat that I was referring to before from, uh, Brian Ives. He said, uh, since the FBS FCS split in 1978, only two teams have posted a losing record as 10 plus point favorites versus FBS teams. It was the 1991 Houston Cougar team. They went two and three. And then of course the 2021 North Carolina team joins them with some elite company also going two and three as 10 point favorites. Um, EJ, with, without its starting quarterback, like I mentioned, and their starting running back, South Carolina went for a season-high 543 total yards. We've mentioned it before this season where this is, this is the MO of the new Carolina defense where they're going to give up season highs to teams no matter who's playing. And for context, South Carolina came into this game with an offense that ranked 116th in the country for total offense and 109th in scoring offense. With the game plan that they put out, if your quarterback isn't like a Pittsburgh, Kenny Pickett type talent, are we going to see this more where Carolina gets some variant of the Wildcat until they show they could stop it where they, they don't have the speed to run with teams sideline to sideline. They can't get off blocks on the outside. And then they also struggle to bring uh, ball carriers down. So do you think this is going to be the new norm going up against this Carolina defense until they show that you can stop it?
0: You know, you want to know what's funny? Uh, other than uh, the that, that load of depressing stats and facts about our defensive football team, this is who we are. We, this, it wasn't just this season where we put this on tape and show how how bad we could be on defense. I mean, this is something and we kind of reiterated in all our podcasts. This has become a common theme for us over the last couple of years talking about this team's lack of tackling, the the, the the lack of ability to stop a running quarterback. I mean, when you have commentators who haven't watched UNC all season saying that up, oh, these guys figured out that UNC couldn't stop a running quarterback, so they're making the game plan just like if the commentators can see it, people who aren't actively in football every day, why aren't, why isn't our staff and our players more, more aware of, of what's going on with this? I mean, I never would have thought that, that the team that was this, and I, and I won't call them bad because I'll never call any any people that are going out there working hard to put their best on the field bad, but this Correct. is a team that's yeah, this is a team that does not. I'll say they're unsuccessful on offense. This is a team by the numbers that has not been successful. They've had three different starting quarterbacks all season. Each one of them, I think they said, had been two and two. Like this is this this is a South Carolina team who, who, who really they, they had some good wins this season, but they, they weren't any they weren't they weren't barn burners. They weren't necessarily blowing people out of the water. And we did not perform. I mean, we, we have a we. we <laughs> The quarterback run is just – it's something that's going to kill us. And I think with the way college football is set up these days, people are going to put their best athletes in the best position to be successful. And a lot of that is going to be these specialty quarterbacks coming in, running these wildcat packages, or a or, or quarterback that's the least bit mobile who can get out of the pocket. I mean, and you're right. It comes down to us sticking the blocks on the outside, uh, not being disciplined in our attack lanes. But, I mean, it's, it's just more of the same um, – I really can't say that moving forward from this point. I mean, my perception of 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 our defense and our team overall didn't change any from this game. You know how sad that is to say that when you lose a game in this fashion, that your perception of your team didn't change. I mean, we you you look at you, you look at kind of the NC State game. I feel like it was a real carryover. It's like these guys got down in the dumps, put their heads down in a hole, and said, "Okay, we're gonna wait for next year." And I think this bowl game was just another chance. Uh, for these guys and yeah I know I'm being a little bit harsh right now but I'm just describing what I saw like Mike said I can't t- talk about what their prep was but I can't describe um, what I saw and what I saw was a, a, a team that I think feel like they, they kind of phoned it in like like you said there are teams that when you go to bowl games there's this weird feeling in the beginning like oh like it's like okay, it's like I'm, it's it's like spring ball training camp feel because you haven't had the pads on too long, but it's the middle or end of December, so like you're definitely in this weird mental headspace, but you got to snap out of it. I mean, you're a Division One college athlete, you're playing football at the highest level that you really can collegially, and you just got to go out there and you have to put it on. You, you have to put it on the field. You have to put it on tape. I know, especially for the bowl game in 2009, we had some very un uh, uninspired practices but what we did as players we got together and said hey we don't want to go down here to charlotte and embarrass ourselves again like we did with pat white i mean that guy came out and had on that 2008 bowl game and had a career game against us i mean and and i still feel like that was a place that we wanted to be i felt like we came out ready to play they just did what most teams do in the bowl game and come up with more creative offense and but and just tendency breakers the bowl game is all about tendency breakers so we can't really say that these guys weren't seeing anything on film because most teams aren't going to are going to try to avoid their tendencies, at least in their first 25 scripted plays. And I think it might can talk to that a little bit more. Like yeah. the first 25 plays, they're, they're, they're not going to be what you've seen from that no, it's No, it,
2: it, it's all kind of stuff you've had as an offense. It's stuff you've had back in the in the coffers all season long that you haven't broken out because, you know, the regular season games matter to I me. Mean, you're trying to make an ACC championship. You're trying to make a major bowl game. And then once you're in the bowl, it's like, screw it. You just throw everything out there. And it's all like the weird gadget stuff that you didn't run early in the season. you see that in your first in your first 15 or your first 25, um, you know, or you see weird personnel groups. I mean, we do that stuff too. You know, a weird personnel group for South Carolina was having a wide receiver quarterback who threw for a hundred percent completion rate. I mean, that's, you know, that is something, you know, so yeah, I mean, there's weird wrinkles you see in bowl games, even crazy stuff like that. where you have people in positions that you would not expect. Now South Carolina was forced into that, but they did have this grad trend. I mean, they are this graduate student backup. Um, or this GA backup who came in and started playing this season. They had him, but instead of starting the game with him, they started with a wide receiver that hadn't thrown a pass in God knows how long. Um, And then he completed every single one of them for a touchdown um, and 160 yards, which, you know, fatty Mike offensive lineman wasn't going to go out there and do so hats off to that kid. And it clearly threw the defense off. So EJ is absolutely correct that, you know, bowl games are another reason why bowl games are weird animals, particularly the middle tier bowl games. Um, You know, where you got nothing to lose, you see weird stuff, you know, on offense and defense. You see weird formations, weird blitz packages, weird personnel groups. I mean, it's just they're just they can be very weird games.
1: Yeah, I was watching I was watching Shane Beamer pretty closely on the sideline and just like his his like I was on the South Carolina sideline, um, like where where my seats were trader. well, well, that's where the press box is. Not to not to not to brag.
3: Oh, toot toot. Toot toot.
1: But I was watching Shane Beamer and it was it was probably a 70/30 South Carolina North Carolina crowd mm-hmm. and after every play it seemed like he was just getting the crowd even more fired up and trying to use that crowd to um help out his team and for for what I kind of expected going into this game it it looked like South Carolina was the team that, that cared more and wanted to be there more. And I know that's, that's tough to say when you don't really know what's going on in, inside the player's head and inside the locker room. But like, like you guys have said, when, when the product on the field is, is that bad, you start questioning what's going on with this North Carolina team. And I think the, the other, well, not the, another problem. I mean, uh, the other problem but another problem for this carolina team the disparity between the third and short scenarios for unc football was it's unlike anything i've ever seen this season where oh, one man. yard one yard for the offense might as well be a country mile and it's it's a layup for the opponents to convert so mike when you're when you're looking at that i when carolina has a third and 1 on offense, I almost never expect them to convert it where they just look so lost and they're they're getting pushed in the backfield and the ball carriers are getting hit three yards behind the line of scrimmage. Jason Staples brought up the point that this looks like a, a soft football team. How do you fix that narrative that this is a, a soft football team when they are getting pushed around on the offensive and defensive line?
2: Uh, go under center on offense and run the damn football and get a yard. I mean, don't, I mean, and I'm, and, I, and this, I, I you bring up this question just like triggered me. Like I, I, I was screaming this in the stands um, holding back every curse word I could think of. Well, you're third and short. I've been, I've said this before. You're third and short. You're in short yarded situations. You're in second and short. You're in fourth and short. I don't care what it is. What are you doing in the shotgun? Why are you going to run Why are you going to run a play that takes five yards to develop before you get back to zero to then gain one yard? And you got to go six yards to gain one yard. Like, why are you going to do that when you can line up under center, hand the ball off at two yards or three yards deep. Okay. And you've now cut that time in half. You've cut that distance in half. This is not like, this is analytics stuff that does that no longer works. This is, this is the, I should say, this is the proof of analytics. Doesn't always work in every situation. This is, this is where, traditional football knowledge, football scheme, and football understanding will never go away. It is a simple game, blocking, tackling, catching, throwing. That's what football is. It's four things. And if you can't do that effectively, you're not going to win a football game. I don't care what the data says. I don't care. I don't care what the stat lines say. I don't care about any analytics talk about. I don't care about any of that stuff. If you want to set a tone, you line up under center, you hand the ball off and you blow people off the ball and you get a yard when you have to get it and you make sure other teams know, you put it on film that if we are in a short yardage situation, they're going to under center. We know they're going to under center. They're going to convert that first down. You put it on film that we're going to convert every single time. Okay. And that starts to carry through in the season and build momentum and it breaks people's back before the game even starts. When they know they're stuck in that situation, every time it comes up in the game, they're going to lose. The best way to win those situations on offense is line up under center, blow people off the ball, and get the yard you have to get. That's an attitude play. That is a, that's, that's situational football. That is, that, is, that is knowing what you have to do, knowing they know you know what you have to do, okay? Putting your hand in the dirt and just moving people against their will and getting the yard when you absolutely have to get it. And every once in a while, toss in a wrinkle. Okay, run a play action, boot out, get a big, you know, get a big gainer, you know, take a shot, that sort of thing. But you got to be able to line up and get a single yard. And we've been doing this all year. If we were in short yard situations 100 times this year, just as a random number. okay, let's just say it's 100 yards for percentage purposes or 100 times for percentage purposes. If we're in that situation, one yard or two yards to go 100 times, we were in the shotgun 97 times. I, I am, and I think that's an. I think that's a legit. I think three is a legitimate number. I don't think I saw us go under center more than three times. We did it once in this game. We did it two other times I can remember this season. Once was after I got on this podcast and screamed about it. I'm not saying I had any impact on it, but clearly they saw the same thing on film that I saw. Okay, the next game we were in a short yard situation. We got under center. We converted. But I think it was three. Maybe it was four times this season. Last season I saw us go under center once or twice. That is a commitment to your offensive scheme and your offensive philosophy. That is a stubborn commitment to your scheme and philosophy and your personnel groupings. Okay. That bites you in the ass. You can, you can be a shotgun team. That's fine. You can be a shotgun, you know, a spread philosophy team like we are. That's fine. But when the situation calls for it, you have to deviate from your philosophy. You got to have a center that can snap the ball with a quarterback but his hands up underneath his grundle. You got to be able to get that ball in that quarterback's hands. That quarterback's got to have the footwork and the ball action to be able to turn around, hand that ball off. And that running back's got to be able to take it in his stomach, okay, and get a yard. It's very simple football. You can't be a shotgun team all the time. And on defense, it's pure attitude and film study. And EJ will talk about this. You know what they're going to do in short yardage situations. And if you don't, you can probably figure it out. On the defensive line it is push. It's pad level and it's push. Again, football is very simple. It's blocking and tackling. It's catching and throwing. It is on the, on the offensive and defensive line, it is pad level and technique, period end of story. And when you get into those situations, you taught you sprinkle in a little bit of want to.
0: Yeah.
2: And a defensive yeah. lineman, I tell you what, there's as an offensive lineman, as an offensive lineman, there is nothing as debilitating as being in a short yard situation, getting stood up by a defensive lineman and that guy making the play, and you being the reason, as an offensive lineman, you being the reason that we didn't that we didn't get the yard or the two yards or whatever it was we needed. Makes you
0: feel better than getting a sack sometimes, man.
2: I tell you what, man, I mean, it's because what you've done is you've, you've, you've physically dominated another man,
0: mm-hmm. and then you've
2: prevented the entire other team from accomplishing what they were going. So you had two wins on that you beat the man yeah, yeah. in your mano a mano matchup and then you beat that other team you 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 were the reason you stopped them mm-hmm. so it's a pure attitude thing it's a want to thing it's it's even when you're tired sticking with your technique and trusting your technique and then deploying that technique and 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 imposing your will on somebody else to make the play when you absolutely have to make it it's the exact same mentality on the offensive side of the ball so how do we fix it on offense go under center and deviate from your offensive philosophy for just please humor me on this next season. Please, for God's sake, humor me. Let's see if it works. And on defense, it's an attitude thing. And it's trusting your technique even when you're tired and knowing that they know what you're about to do because you know what they're about to do. And you just being the, you just being the tougher, stronger, more aggressive human being and winning that matchup because you have to. And if you're put in a situation where you have to win a matchup and you can't do it, you've got much bigger problems as a team. EJ, what, what about you? How
1: do you think you fix a, a team that looks soft in, in the trenches and from the defensive side of the ball where a third, a third and one teams, teams are essentially just walking through the line to convert these first down attempts for, against Carolina?
0: The thing about it is becoming tougher on defense. Like Mike said, it's an attitude thing. So it's never a comfortable conversation if a defensive coach has to talk to his guys about not being soft. Because like you said, it's like, we're, we're we're playing a very reactionary game and at the end of the day it would be very easy for offense to come out and impose their will on the defense but you see it so often I mean you look at a team like Georgia I mean it's more so the defense going out there and opposing their will on those guys I know that we don't have the type of roster that Georgia has I mean nobody in the country has the type of roster that Georgia has on the defensive side of the ball but we have to get tougher it, it, it's, it comes down to I think this offseason, you're going to have a lot of strength coaches and people challenging these players. There's not going to be as comfortable as it has been in the past. I don't think you're going to see a lot of these videos coming out, a lot of great videos we we love to see coming out from this offseason program because I think it's time to shut some of that off and and get into it with each other. And I might get attest to this. I know uh, we talk about uh, uh, Coach Connors a lot, but uh, Coach Connors really was a change um, in our program. When Coach Davis got there, he was in. Um, he empowered Coach Connors. He told him. He said, "Hey, you're the guy that's going to be spending the most time with these guys. This is what we want from these guys. We want a guys that are going to be physically tough, and we want guys that are going to win in the fourth quarter." So, if, if we took that on ourselves, we said, "Hey, this guy's coached it, it, at the highest level ever. This is what he said we need to do to be tough. That's what we need to do." So, um, it, it's going to be some very hard conversations. They're going to be some one-on-one uh, conversations in the offseason season where coaches want to challenge some of these people, but. I mean, honestly, the, the sad thing about it is it's, it's one of those things you either have or you don't. I mean, that's one of those traits that we're talking about. They say you can't coach size, you can't coach heart, you can't coach will, and you can't coach toughness. So the only way that we do this are challenging the guys that we have now and being more cognizant of these players' character and, and toughness level and recruitment. We can't we can't just look at what is this guy's stats. If this If this team's losing, is this guy still playing? If he's playing against a team, if, he, if he's overmatched, is he giving up or is he still giving his guys all and still there until the final whistleblower? So it's going to, like I said, it's going to be a, very, a couple of uncomfortable conversations. And honestly, from the way that our transfer report is looking on the defensive side, I think maybe these coaches have tried to challenge some of these guys. And some of these guys haven't liked what they said. So I think that the transfer report is going to make this transition even more harder because, I mean, back in the day, there are guys that you're going to challenge that will step up and take that and say, okay, this is – I'm going to wear this as a badge of honor that the coach cared about me so much and saw so much in me that he challenged me. Guy's going to be like, oh, well, this guy's challenged me. I'm going to go somewhere where a coach is going to let me be me and play my style of ball. So, hopefully we can start getting the right type of people in there and somebody that's going to that's going to bear the torch for our team being a, a tough physical defense.
1: Mike, you mentioned this one play earlier um, that I wanted to go back to, the, the British Brooks uh, touchdown run. Yeah. Where – it, it kind of goes along the same, the same talking point when you're talking about toughness. I don't think anybody could watch British Brooks play and question his toughness because every time he's out there, we've said it on this podcast, you watch him and you're like, this is the closest thing to Javante Williams that North Carolina currently has on this roster with the vision, with the physicality he brings every time he runs the ball. On just his fourth carry of the game, he's, he scores – 63 yards out, cut South Carolina's lead uh, late. I think it was either early in the second quarter or late in the first quarter. And then he gets one carry the rest of the game. How would you begin to explain that for the fans who are like, why isn't this guy playing more? Why didn't he see more
2: action in,
1: in the, in the mail bowl?
2: Um, Ty Chandler's last game and British Brooks has now announced he's coming back. Maybe that has something to do with it. So lo- we're, lo-
1: we're, we're saving Brooks for next year.
2: No, 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 it's not that it's, it's lo- loyalty to tie and trying to get him as many carries and get as get him as many NFL looks as possible, because here's the other thing you think you, you got to realize in, in bowl games is that, and the coaches understand this, this is an audition for us, for scouts. There are scouts in the stands of every bowl game. There are players on the field that have NFL potential in every bowl game. If you're on a winning team, the team is a winning team because it has guys who are talented. And if you have guys who are talented, some of them are talented enough to go pro and scouts are going to come look at those guys, whether they're fringe guys, whether they're camp body guys, you know, as they think they are, whether they're, you know, high draft picks or potential high draft picks scouts are going to come look at everybody they think might have a shot. Coaches know that. So if you have a senior who, you know, is done after this, who has worked his butt off and who has been, you know, loyal to the program and has done everything you've asked him to do. You're going to want to, you're going to defer in some cases to giving him as many opportunities as humanly possible. I think that might have played into it. Um, If that wasn't what happened, I hope that's what happened. If that wasn't what happened, it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago about stubborn adherence and commitment to your offensive scheme and your offensive philosophy to the detriment of your team. Um, British Brooks doesn't fit the mold of the offense that we want to be running right now. You know, maybe we want a more athletic, you know, smaller, you know, more scat back type of thing out of the backfield. Maybe that's how we want this offense to look, you know, more of a Mike Leach, Texas tech, mid two thousands type of, t- maybe that's what we want this to look like. Pat White, Steve Slayton, West Virginia, Rich Rod, West Virginia. Maybe that's what we want this to look like. Maybe we want more Noel Devines and less Javante Williams. I don't know. Um, again, I'm not in those coaches meetings. I'm not with Phil Longo. I'm not with Mac Brown. I'm not with that coaching staff. Um, so I would hope that it, it was a deference to getting Ty Chandler as many NFL looks and opportunities as humanly possible, letting him get as much film as possible, knowing that British is going to have that opportunity next year. That's the positive look at it. The negative look at it is a complete and total misunderstanding of what you have on the field, the momentum of the game and what's going on. Yeah. That is the complete and total cynical look. I'm not going to accuse anybody of that because they get paid a lot of money to be better than that. So I have to assume that they are in terms of the coaching staff. Um, I've seen some boneheaded things, which I think were boneheaded because, again, it's a, it is a stubborn adherence to your offensive philosophy in situations where it doesn't call for it, where the situation calls for variation. Um, I've seen that for over the last three years, not just this year. I saw it against Florida State last year when we were quote-unquote number five going down to Tallahassee. Um, Stubborn adherence to an offensive philosophy and a game plan that needs to be abandoned or varied in some capacity. Um, That does happen, and it happens with this staff. Um, But I have to think that the reason why British, you know, got his his touch, got his touchdown, got his stat line, and then was essentially phased out of the game completely was because, you know, they wanted – tie in there maybe we felt like we had to start throwing the ball more although we were still running the ball maybe we felt like we were in more of a catch-up situation which we obviously were under the circumstances and tie gave us the best chance out of the backfield as a receiver i don't know um i have to think that it's because they wanted to get him as many looks as possible but again i've told you my my absolute my absolutist cynical view um although i don't think that's what happened I'll, then again it, it could be what happened i don't know
1: EJ, if if you're this coaching staff right now, we, t- we talked about earlier how this coaching staff, they have developed players in the past, so they have developed elite players and turned players into NFL players. But if you're this coaching staff, how do you address the development issue that seemingly happening at Carolina? Because when you're looking at this roster where the year three just ended for the Mac Brown 2.0 era, and it's it's hard to count on one hand the players that have looked noticeably better year to year where I think the best example of that is a player like Tony Grimes who last year when targeted his opponent's passing rating was 33.1 to where this year it seemed like a massive step back to 93.4 so quarterbacks were a lot more efficient when targeting Grimes and I don't want to just single out Tony Grimes um, because I think this is a problem that Carolina has had across the roster where the offensive line has regressed. You have players like Des Evans and Justin Olsen playing out there who, who look like they're, they're struggling. How do you address a program where it seems like players are either taking a step back or not taking any steps at all?
0: That's a, that, that's a very interesting question. It's something I honestly think about, and I really can't think of a, a good answer for that because, like you said, it, it's getting to a point where we're not just not developing player. players. Is, players are taking a step back. I, I, don't, I really don't know how that happens without, without an in, injury. Um, but still, with an injury, it'd only be a physical step back, not with technique, not with, with any of those things. So I, I really don't understand it. I mean, I was really excited about, um, like we talked about, like Tony Grimes coming into the season, guys like Larry Asante. Um, and some other guys that we kind of really didn't see i mean even tamari Fox we really didn't see that next level jump from him with the type of season that he had last year and i know he he played a little bit more sparingly than he did uh, the previous season but we, we really didn't see that next level of talent i mean he looked like he could have been an elite guy but i mean he, i mean like not not saying that he played badly this year but it wasn't the type of year that we expected and i, I really think that this coaching staff sometimes it seems like they're paying so much, so much attention on recruiting and getting the next big thing into the program. They forget about what they already have to cover And These are, these guys were, were your three and four star recruits uh, before you started moving on to the new shiny thing. So you have to make sure that these players are good or it's going to make it harder for you when you go out on the road, there's going to be a guy who said, okay, my friend who was a four star recruit went to your school, went to play for you. Now he's not getting any playing time. He's not getting any better. He's not getting any NFL looks. Why do i think anything is going to be different if i come to your program so i think that it's going to be a larger overarching program a problem because i mean if we as fans and people who sit down and put this this in, and analyze this uh, program under a microscope and a fine tooth phone if we're noticing this and really talking about it there's not going to be long before there's a national story on espn or acc network or some website talking about the lack of development uh, at the players at unc and it's going to start getting out. And that's going to be the, that, that, That's gonna our start letter matter when we go out to recruiting. we're going to have to not only sell the kids on why they should come to Carolina, but we'll explain to them that they will get developed and that everything that's been happening is an anomaly. But it's hard to do that when you have guys that we, we really haven't seen kind of taking some of these next steps. I mean, you think about a guy like Sam Howell as a leader of a player as he is. We're still talking about him holding the ball too long. And this is coming from other people. Like, people are coming to me. And it's like, hey, why is Sam holding the ball too long and yada, yada, yada? I was like, well that's something that we're talking about every week and trying to figure it out as well, because we're, we're, we're more successful when that happens. So, I mean, if you think about him, not just having that God given talent and want to, how much is he actually being developed and being prepared to, to be that that type of quarterback on the next level, even for the team while he's there. So, I mean, our, 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 our coaching staff has started to develop a reputation for getting the guys in the door, but not really doing anything with, with them once they're there. So I really don't know how we address that. I've never been a coach. I've never had to, to deal with that, I've never been tasked with recruiting new players in developing a game plan and developing players. So it's a it's a tough call,
2: but that's the job that they signed up to do. My Terry Bad Terry Baden had that problem too. EJ, remember, remember the old Clemson teams?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He they they. I mean, they you, you look at the Clemson teams. I mean, they had one of the top five or top at least top eight recruiting classes in the country, and then they come out on the field and they they be very very average. I mean, one of, we played against one of those teams down where they had. Philip, Merlin, Gaines, Adams, James, Davis, C.J. Spiller, and they—you're still not hearing Clemson talking national promise promise until the last couple of years, and that's because Dabble came in and started developing some of the guys that were there, recruiting the guys, and then making them better. I think the best example of that is when you look at Hunter Renfro. I mean, this guy had a great—he he got progressively better. You look at him now; he's one of the best possession receivers in the NFL. So, well, that's what happens when you develop players. Um, and he looks
2: like—and he, he looks like a dad that drinks garage beers on Saturday morning.
0: He really does. I mean, it, it, that's what makes what he's doing more impressive.
1: <laughs> it, it shocks me every time I watch a Raiders game and just Hunter Renfro running wide open 13 yards down the field for a nice 16, with, 17 yard game. With
2: zero muscle tone
1: at <laughs> all. Yeah.
0: But, but his routes are precision.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, they are. Yep. Um, Mike along, along those same lines, the the carolina fan they're, they're hanging their hat on the recruiting rankings and that it better days matter. better days are coming for this program because better talent is on the way nah. but but yeah the the counterpoint to that is carolina isn't losing to the clemsons and the georgias and the alabamas they are getting thoroughly outworked by florida state south carolina Georgia Tech, who's been recruiting for the triple option. The Their past... head coach wears a flat bill hat and
2: a tank top. <laughs> the,
1: past, the past 10, 15 years, Georgia Tech has been recruiting for the triple option. Jeff Collins comes there, and he's trying to figure out, how do I get away into a more modern style of football? And in year three, his team destroys North Carolina. So With him, with him dressed as a baseball manager. A t-ball, a t-ball coach. T-ball coach. Yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it can't be as simple as just plugging in better players when the, the product on the field looks like this in year three,
2: is it? No. And, you know, if this is sacrilege coming from a, you know, we work for ISC, which is, you know, at its core recruiting service, you know, recruiting, you know, reporting service. Um, and so it was two, four, seven, but, the truth of the matter is that none of that stuff has any real impact on the team unless you can, like we've talked about now for 15 minutes, develop those players once they're in the door. Recruiting is nice, and you know what, what, the, what, the, what the rankings do and fans need to understand this if you're a two-star and then you get a string of Division 1A offers, or FBS offers, you will then become a three-star because of those offers you didn't change as a player the offers you got from other schools validated your talent and then you increased in ranking that then continues throughout the ranking system the higher the you know the the more prestigious teams and programs that offer you the higher star rankings you get next thing you know you're a four or five star recruit um, but you haven't gotten any better as a player um, in most cases you've just gotten more attention um, you've gotten more offers from from programs so your rank the ranking system is all great and 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 it does serve a purpose but it doesn't really matter once those guys are on campus and we've seen that ej and i have personal experience with that with guys we played with every program in the country has this where you have four and five star guys that come in and they just don't make it for whatever reason the college is just not the type of game we talked about this off off air before the pod started you know there's guys that There's guys that go to college, they were stars in high school, they were All-Americans in high school, and the college game just doesn't suit them. Just like there are guys that go to the NFL and the college game didn't suit them but they kill it in the NFL and they, they, they rack up 10 year careers. And in college, they were like, okay, guys, maybe spot starters. I mean, there's dozens of guys like that in the league right now. And then the inverse is also true. We've got guys that were stars in college. We, and this is what we talk about with bus. They're the ones that get the most attention. The guys that were great in college, they get to the NFL and the, their, their game just doesn't translate to the NFL game for whatever reason. But what people don't pay attention to are guys that are the opposite where they weren't that great in college. They were good players on okay teams, Um, and then they get to the league and their stars. Um, and there's just a weird for there's different strokes for different folks is how, is how I equate it. The same is true with recruiting guys can be all world in high school and they come to college and they just fizzle out. What made those, those, um, the two thousands Miami teams so great was that they would recruit guys that were two and three stars out of Florida that were being overlooked because Florida is such a fertile recruiting ground. They would recruit guys that weren't, you know, the highest rated recruit in the state of Florida, but they, then maybe they were playing the wrong position and they could be put somewhere else. And they were a more natural player somewhere else at a different spot on the field, or they were just being overlooked because the guy at the school down the street was you know, the all-world recruit, this kid was just as good, if not better, or at least had the potential to be better. But because of that kid down the street, he wasn't getting the looks he was supposed to be getting. Miami would take those guys, and they would take a two- and a three-star guy, and they'd turn them into a first-round NFL draft pick. Many of those guys think Ed Reed are now Hall of Famers, okay? That is because of player development. That's what made those 2000s-era Miami teams so good, was player development and spotting talent, where other folks missed it diamonds in the rough type of thing that old cliche recruiting is not a science you do want as many of the high-ranking recruits as you can get because the advantage of them is obvious they come on the campus presumably with more physical talent and physical tools that you can then build on but if you don't ever build on those tools and the player comes in the door you know at this level of play and then they leave and they never got any better while they were there then what was the point and that's the situation that you see a lot of teams run into with some of these four and five star recruits. So what I would say is fans can get, you know, the, the recruiting rankings and the signing day and all that stuff that fans should be excited about that. If you get a lot of guys, you know, what, what it does show is if you get a lot of high ranking recruits committing to your school, okay, and signing with your school, that sh- that's a vote of confidence in your program, a vote of confidence in your coaching staff. Those players, without knowing anything about you or, or your campus or your culture, say, I want to play for these guys, that, that, that should get you excited. You should feel a sense of pride in that. But that's where, that's, where, that's where the excitement and the expectations should stop as fans. Because then what happens is, do they develop? What you then need to pay attention to is, do they develop? And, and recruiting rankings and the recruiting process has no control over what happens to those guys when they get on the campus, how they develop themselves, how the staff develops them, and what will they ultimately become? Will they fizzle out or will they stay stars? Will they become better than they were? Will they leave better, more talented, more capable football players than when they walked in the door? And if they don't, you never hear from them again. Or your program puts them on the field because of how highly they were ranked, but they don't produce at the level that they are expected to produce. Then They're not developing at the way they're expecting to develop. And now they're no different than the two and three star guy down the street who winds up at the other school uh, in your conference, who's now beating you. Um, That's that's my take on recruiting. That's a long way of saying recruiting doesn't mean anything other than high school kids who are being recruited by the other Goliaths of college football have shown a vote of confidence in you and your coaching staff. And that should make you feel good. That should give you some warm and fuzzies. It really should. Um, That is a good litmus test for where the outside world thinks your program is. But once signing day is over what the outside world thinks doesn't matter. And all that matters is what's actually going on inside that building. And if those players aren't developing and they're not turning into the player you need them to turn into, you're going to continue to shoot for the middle. You're going to continue to be mediocre no matter how well you you recruited the year before, no matter how high that class was ranked. What matters is the guys you have in the building, the guys that are in that weight room that are going through that off-season program, what EJ just talked about. Those guys you already have are more important than the shiny new thing you got coming in the door. And the now, focus should be on those guys you already have. Yeah, we're uh,
1: we're celebrating the new year today, but it's feeling a, a bit like festivus, the twenty third of December, where we're airing out our grievances with the <laughs> Carolina program. But that that that's all we have for for this year on this podcast. I just wanted to say, you know, thank you, Mike and EJ, and thank you everybody to list that listens. I I think this podcast. Uh, this podcast was pretty therapeutic today. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it, it can seem harsh at times, but I think we we come from a a place of caring about this program and not, we love our program. We love our program.
2: We killed ourselves for this program. We did. I've got it up on, you see, if you're watching the video, I got it up on my wall behind me. The, the proudest thing I am as a Carolina football player. That's, that's my identity will always be a Carolina football player. The, the program matters to us. So Taylor's right. If, if we seem like we're being harsh, it comes from a place of love because our expectations having been in that building are at a certain level, whether that's justified or not is for the fans of debate on the message boards. But um, we have certain expectations that we want our program to succeed. Just like a parent wants their kid to be successful, right? The program is our baby and we want it to be successful. So yeah, we get, we get mad, we get pissed and we rant on things and our heads explode when you talk about why can't we convert on third and short, you know, and that's, that's just, that's what happens. But um, it's because we come from this, from a place of love and pride and frankly, identity. It is Carolina football is our identity.
1: Yeah. It it also comes from a place where I I don't want to be the the 75 year old, 80 year old guy saying (laughs) maybe maybe it's this year for Carolina football. And you just, (laughs) you just keep moving the goalposts down. Uh, year by year and getting your hopes up every July and, uh, and August. But guys, again, thank you for the time. Always appreciate it.
3: Thanks, Taylor. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it.